And welcome to another episode of G220 Radio. This is Ricky Gantz along with Mike Miller, and we are G220 Radio. We want to welcome you to the program here tonight. Mike, how are we doing, man? <clears throat> Sorry. I'm doing okay. Had to, <clears throat> had to deal with some stuff before the show, so I'm a little kind of still jittery. Mm. Well, we will pray for you that... Uh, You'll be able to make it through the show and uh, that all things there that you had to deal with will be uh, uh, worked out. But I do have an audience with me today, though. Yeah. I guess one just left. Is the other one going to leave, too? Anyways, just before this show started, the dogs broke into where I'm recording. Mm. Uh, now they're leaving. Yeah. So I did have an audience for a short time. Yeah. We ought to do that sometime. If I get down to Louisville um, and you're back there in Louisville... Maybe go down and do a live show. We'll do a live show with a live audience. Um, <laughs> we won't take any questions, so this way they don't give us anything hard right off. The, you know, like yeah, we're live. No, just kidding. But um, no, um, we ought to do that sometime. Uh, that would be fun. All right, so tonight uh, we're going to be talking about theonomy. This is a, a a show in which we've never done a topic on it. I'm pretty sure the 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 conversation has come up in shows in the past. Uh, and we have made um, maybe comments towards theonomy, uh, but as a show topic, we've never really addressed it. Uh, had someone recently reach out and ask if we've done a show on Christian nationalism, haven't done a show on it. And I think they're kind of similar uh, with theonomy. And um, and then we just recently had another uh, um, listener to the program. I had a brain freeze for a moment there. I had a listener to the to the program who asked if we've ha had a show on theonomy and we haven't. And so um, that's why we're doing this here tonight. So I reached out to our guest and we're going to talk about within theonomy, there's general the uh, equity theonomy, which we're going to talk about tonight. There's reconstructionist theonomy. Um, again, the, the term uh, Christian nationalism has been thrown out there, which when I listen to some of the, the definitions that some, some of the people are giving, it sounds kind of like a theonomy uh, um, takeaway there as well. So I just thought, okay, well, let's do a, do a show on it. We'll, we'll talk about general equity theonomy and kind of get an overview of what this is. Uh, and then maybe at some point, maybe talk about reconstructionist theonomy or, or whatnot, or um, whatever this Christian nationalism um, ultimately is. We can maybe do a show on that down the line. But we want to focus on general equity theonomy here tonight uh, and see what uh, we can learn. And this would hopefully be a resource for someone who's looking at what is a general equity theonomist? What do they believe? What are they? How do they come to those conclusions? And so that's what we we want to kind of accomplish here tonight. So we're going to bring on our guest. He's been on the program before, uh, Dan Knapp. He is uh, here with us. He's a general equity theonomist, and so uh, he's going to uh, fill us in on what that is. So go ahead, Dan. Why don't you go ahead and first just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, anything that you would like the the listening audience to know, uh, and then we'll go ahead and jump right into uh, this discussion on general equity theonomy. All right, great. Yeah, I'm Dan. I'm happy to be back. Thanks for uh, reaching out to me and uh, asking me to return. Um, I've served as a deacon chairman. I have a master's in divinity. Uh, I've been a Christian now for about 20 years. I'm happily married. Uh, I'm going on 13 years with two kids. Uh, if you can, if you can, you can zoom in and see pictures of them up there. And so, uh, yeah, God has worked great things in my life, and I'm hoping that He continues to use me until he calls me home. And so I, I'm thankful to be here and I'm thankful to use 
hopefully my gifts to be a blessing to the church. And again, we, we want to thank you for coming back on the program. Um, why don't you go ahead? Um, we talked a little bit before the show. You said you've got some uh, information that you can kind of give us to kind of set the foundation of this here. So you go ahead and take as much time as you need to kind of tell us about this general equity theonomy to kind of set the stage for the program here tonight. Yeah, I don't want to monopolize the program, but I do have a, a about a five-minute definition that would hopefully springboard us to the rest of the evening. Um, this is largely a discussion of definitions and categories. Many people would agree on a lot of things, or even the outcome of a lot of things, except for some nuance, or except, except for somehow some dominoes fall to get to the same outcome. So this is largely an in-house philosophical discussion. Theonomy is just a cognitive two words. Theo meaning God, you know, from Theos from the Greek, and nomos coming again from the Greek for law. So theonomy is God's law. Everyone, this has to be clear, everyone in this discussion agrees that the law does not save. Even the most ardent reconstructionists would say that we are not saved by law. This is not a question about how we get past the pearly gate, but rather how do we live and how do we engage on earth? So I want to be clear about that. This discussion is an in-house Christian discussion. Everyone in it holds to sola fide, right? And so we want to we want to be clear on that front. An another qualification: this needs to be distinguished from theocracy. Theonomy and theocracy are different categories. Theocracy is a form of government hierarchy with the spiritual leaders up top. Theonomy is a different category. Theonomy is not asking what the governmental org chart looks like but rather what is the content of those laws that those people on the top will prescribe, right? So there may be some overlap. There may be things that theonomists would say are not allowed in a certain governmental form uh, or vice versa, but they're strictly talking about different types of things. Theocracy is the government order and theonomy is the content of the laws, right? And so uh, <clears throat> there's many different forms of government and religion playing together through history. And so we have to make sure that when we're talking about these things, we don't make the mistake that a lot of people make that say, you just want a theocracy, you just want the priests on top. I'm like, that's actually not what we're going for. Everyone, though, is in a sense a theonomist, every individual. This, according to the likes of Bonson, is inescapable. Secular humanists have science as their priests and human opinion as their lawgiver. Muslims have Allah. Uh, Christians obviously have Christ. Everyone, in a sense, is the theonomic. Their religious preconceptions will impact how you view how the government works and what laws it would have, right? So th this question is inescapable. And the fact that you are theonomic, that your religion impacts your view of of the of the world is inescapable right the question really is who is the theo in theonomy even libertarians appeal to an unbreakable law of rights and our anarchy even ultimately appeals to the sanctity of the individual right they have religious presuppositions that impact their political outlook so christians disagree on the content 
of this ethic. But we do not disagree that we should be obedient to God, right? How do we determine what God desires is the real question. This is a hermeneutic question. And really, it's a question of love. How do we love our neighbors? How is love defined, right? Love isn't this airy, fairy feeling, but rather the, the Bible defines love. And it's an action, and it plays out in specific ways, right? So when someone tells you to love your neighbor, you have to ask, okay, how? <laughs> and is that how biblical? That's the question. So, so theonomy is basing your morals, your ethics, and even your political desire for laws on God's law, <clears throat> normally the Mosaic Covenant, right? The term general equity comes from both the 1689 London Baptist as well as the Westminster. Both of them are in chapter 19, verse 4. And there's been disagreements on this term. But to my understanding, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a genius, so I could be wrong. But my understanding is the best historical understanding is that it's saying the general equity is what's the moral? What is the principle? What is the intent? What is the spirit of the law? Right? So when you look at some of these Mosaic laws, what's the thinking behind it? And that is what should be the Christian's ethic and what we'd want to see play out in, in the body politic. So this is how we understand and how we apply it. This is a question of hermeneutics. The Westminster in 19.4 says this, to Israel, the body politic, God gave various and sundry laws, which expired together with the state of this people. It sounds like that all the laws expired, but we need to keep reading. It says, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. So it's saying that, in a sense, those judicial laws, those, those particular things and how to apply or how to administer these things, those expired. But the general equity, the, the, the meaning, the intent, the heart behind it is still required. And so the reform position, which the 1689 actually basically copies and pastes, says that the judicial law, the exact administration application of the law has expired when Israel expired in 70 AD. But we are still obliged to follow the general equity of this law. What is the principle? And not only us. In both the Westminster and the 1689, the very next paragraph says this. The moral law does forever bind all. The moral law binds all, as well as justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. Everyone is bound to this moral law. And not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also the respect of the authority of God as creator. Because God is creator, everyone is bound to it. Neither does Christ nor the gospel in any way dissolve, but strengthens this obligation. Strengthens the obligation, right? So because of Christ and his, his coming and his lordship, God's law now has a higher burden on us versus a lower one. Now, there is some disagreement to how you define moral law. Uh, regardless of how you see the reformers here, they believe that the law was not weakened by Christ's coming, but heightened, right? And so, and this is not only for those within the church, but for everyone. Also, general equity theonomy 
sees, as even Reconstructionists do, that the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Christ. The judicial law expired with the nation of Israel, but the moral elements of each of these, the judicial and the ceremonial and the moral law, the the morals behind it, those continue. For example, we see that there's a moral element even in the Sabbath, right? But to practice the, the Saturday Sabbath in a legalistic, pharisaical way is considered obsolete, right? But we still want to get to what is the intent of this? What is the reason for this? We should still recognize there are moral implications to both the judicial as well as the ceremonial law. Another very common example is in the old days, uh, in the Middle East, people would go to the roofs of their houses to cool off in the evenings um, because basically their house was a was a mud oven <laughs> right through the day. And so the law was you had to have a parapet. You had to have a fence around the roof of the house so you wouldn't fall off. Right? So today, no one hangs out on their roofs. But what would a similar, what would a general equity application of that be to put a fence around your pool? So no one can fall in and get hurt, right? So that's the types of things we're talking about. And this helps us define what love of neighbor is. If we solely rely on human reason or natural law without inspired scriptures, we can end up off base. Uh, that is why pagan religions sacrifice children. They see a natural relationship between sacrifice and land growth. Or why the LGBT WXYZ argue that we are born this way. They're making a natural law argument. And without scriptures, if all you're basing on is natural law, it may be hard to argue against these. So in short, let me finish up here. General equity theonomy is a position that says that God's law continues today. It is the intent and the ethic, but not the exact jurisdiction and administration. This often includes the penal code, which is the death penalty for things like murder and kidnapping. And again, this is not about salvation. Right, which is by faith alone, and how we as a church and individual understands and engage with our neighbors, with the body politic, and with culture. Now, some people might say that general equity theonomy is an oxymoron. These terms are contradictions, and I understand that. Right, Theonomy historically is, say, is to say that God's law is literal and has to be applied one for one, and general equity is don't. Right. And so these terms smashed together may create some tension. And I understand that. But the nomenclature is just attempting to capture the position and point back to the confession as its source. So don't be put off simply by the title. It's just a name tag. So that that's the, what I can give as a short quick springboard into this discussion and some qualifications and areas that we should or shouldn't be discussing. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Um, give us an idea of kind of where we can go. One of the things I do want to touch on, to be clear, because as I, I was saying to you before the program, and I think uh, Mike and I have talked about this in the past, um, even in the idea of maybe putting together a show on theonomy, I found it very difficult to find a unity within the discussion. Because this guy that says he's a theonomist will say certain things, and then this other theonomist will say things that are are different than what I'm hearing from this guy. And then those who are opposing it will say things, and I'm like, and theonomists will say, no, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what we believe. Um, so you mentioned, and so I, I want to be clear, because from some of the conversations that I've heard, 
And as you stated already, there's that with theonomy or we're going with general equity theonomy here, nobody is saying that you are legislating with God's law faith. No one's coming to salvation. No one's faith is being, um, no one's receiving faith by the law. Um, we do see uh, laws being instituted that do legislate morality, um, but no, but not it's not legislating faith. It's not causing or forcing someone to become Christian, or as you said, the salvation. So I want to make sure that we're we're clear with that there, um, because it, I think it, that's yeah, an important that's, thing. Go ahead. It's a very important thing. You uh, you cannot legal someone into the faith. Right, it's mm -hmm. it's a process between you and God and regeneration in the Spirit, working to save someone. Right, and so even if you have a good Christian government, that doesn't necessitate that everyone in that body is going to be saved. Mm -hmm. Right, that is that is based on faith alone. Yeah, and that's one of the kind of philosophical differences, maybe between Reconstructionism which was a movement back in the 70s and 80s that kind of petered out in some ways. They want to be more top-down, right? Uh, general equity theonomy, kind of the more newish thing that people are out there talking about and that I'm talking about, um, they want to be more bottom-up. We have to be evangelizing. We have to be saving people. We have to be hitting the streets and letting God work that way. And then as that, as that change takes place, you see God work much like it did in the early church, we will see a groundswell and people would want to then start living in a Christian culture and changing the Christian laws. But simply asking, simply asking your neighbor to obey certain laws does not make them Christian. And we do that today, right? Let's just say, for example, if the speed limit is an unjust law, interesting discussion, me following it doesn't mean I necessarily agree with it, right? These, these are different categories. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, and that's why I want to make it clear because I think when coming to this discussion, we, we talked, like I said, a little bit before the show. Um, I, I, I hold to a general equity within the 1689. Uh, whether that makes me theonomist, I don't know. That's why we're trying to work through this conversation. Um, Mike would agree also with the general equity within a in the confession. Um, but I know Mike wouldn't hold to theonomy. So mm -hmm. what, but what we want to do and what we try to do here at, at G220 radio is we want to be fair in the conversation. We want to not misrepresent the other side of things, um, as we're seeking to navigate and have those kind of discussions. And that's why I think it's very clear because one of those things that do get thrown out there is this idea that you're trying to legislate people into Christianity and so, but that's not something we're seeing with this conversation. So it's not something we should throw out and say, oh, you're just trying to make people Christians. No, that's not there. That's, but, but as you said, um, we do legislate morality all the time. It's against it's the law to murder. What's yeah. that? That's all, it's all you can legislate is morality. Yeah. Once you make yeah. a law against it, it becomes a moral thing. That's why that's another reason why it's inescapable. You're going to have laws. Those laws are going to be based on some kind of ethic. So when they say you can't legislate morality, actually, that's the only thing that you legislate. Right. Yeah. right. So I think in, in establishing that and then looking at this, I think one of the other things is 
with general equity, I, I, I've heard it as a 1689 guy, we're talking about positive law. We take from that, from those laws, and you mentioned the one that's used as often as an example, the, the parapet around a, a house. Um, and we put them around a pool, or if you have a well in your yard, or if you have a dog, you put a fence around so your dog doesn't get out and bite somebody. You know, you're, you're doing that for the love of your neighbor, for keeping your neighbors safe and not harmed um, because of they falling into a well on your, your property. But um, how, I, I think what kind of can make the conversation um, difficult, I think, especially for those, uh, we're not dispensationalists here, but maybe those coming out of that kind of background where they just completely put the law off altogether and say, we're under grace, we're not under law. Um, when you look at these, you, you tend to wonder how then, because there's so many different theological uh, understandings or, or interpretations, I should say, by Christians, how do we find what the general equity is in some of these laws? You know what I so, mean? Like, but go sorry, ahead. Before you answer that, let's let's give some context on kind of kind of where this debate is. I think it might be helpful for those who may not know, because um, you mentioned positive law. Well, I don't know how many people know what positive law. And I think let's I think if we provide some background. This may be helpful. Um, before it to kind of do it. So you mentioned positive law, um, kind of the understanding of that for people who don't know what that term means is that, um, that it is a law that God has given to people that cannot be known that would not have been known beforehand. And so it's kind of made within a covenant agreement. For example, the covenant of creation with Adam the positive law is not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's a positive law because it's added on. Adam could not know before God told him to that he cannot eat of this tree. Um, so that's the idea of a positive law. And what that comes into then in this discussion, which is more relevant than the, um, the creation of covenant, is the Mosaic law and the three-part division that has been traditional, though people, like you mentioned, dispensationalists kind of reject that, mm -hmm. where you have the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments, then your civil laws or your judicial laws, how Israel is to function as a nation, those are positive. So people would say the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is transcending, then the positive laws are the ceremonial laws, and then the judicial laws. So going back to judicial law, the judicial laws being how Israel is to function as a nation. And then the ceremonial laws, which everyone agrees on is fulfilled in Christ, how they are to kind of become right dealing with the priesthood and the temple and sacrifices. And so the, this discussion of theonomy deals in that reign. Like how do we understand whether you agree with the three-part law or not, but the laws of the Mosaic covenant and kind of their relation, not only to Israel, but then to those in the new covenant standing, I think, it, and hopefully that's helpful yeah. um, to kind of, mm -hmm. to give a framework of what, of kind of before we just jump in into the deep end and drown ourselves. <laughs> so let me see if I can uh, jump on that a little bit. The discussion around positive law 
kind of depends on some of your other definitions. If you understand general equity more in a natural law type thing, you will have more room for positive law. If you're coming more from a maybe a biblicist or a Vantillian point of view, you actually have less room for positive law. And that's because the way that, that general equitists generally look at it is that the laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and those those specifics are actually case law to the Ten Commandments. And so most people in this discussion, in the reform circles especially, would say that the Ten Commandments are the quote-unquote moral laws. But what is the moral law? How does that play out, right? And so the parapet around the roof is actually an elaboration or a case law upon don't kill, right? Don't murder. What's one way of not murdering? What is a case of this? That is you need to add protection around things that are dangerous on your property, right? So in effect, the positive laws of the Mosaic Covenant are actually just case laws on the moral code, right? And that's why you're actually looking more for the the general equity, the, 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 the moral, the intent, the purpose behind it, and have that play out, right? And so when you, when you look at, especially Deuteronomy, as a case law system, right? Imagine Moses. He was sitting there. He's taking in all these cases. He's dishing out wisdom. Then his father-in-law comes and says, hey, set up a hierarchy of courts and systems and judges. So he does so. And what ends up kind of in Deuteronomy, in a sense, is what Moses wrote down based on the tough cases that got to him, right? So how do I apply the Ten Commandments in this case, right? Another example of this would be uh, if a neighbor borrows something and it breaks in usage. This is in Deuteronomy. Who's responsible for that thing that broke? Let's say I loan you my lawnmower and it breaks while you're mowing your lawn. Well, who who pays to get it repaired? In in Mosaic law, it is the person who borrowed it, unless the person is paying to rent for it. And if the person's paying for it, then they then the owner is set to repair for it. Right. And so there is an example of do not steal. Right. If someone loans you something, give it back to them in working condition. Otherwise, you'd be stealing from them unless you've paid for that borrow. So you're renting it then that is how that is one way, one application, one case that Moses probably had to deal with wandering in the desert for those 40 years of what it means to not steal, right? And so the moral law, many people would agree, is just the Ten Commandments. And the general equitists generally see the rest of the Mosaic Code as just case and application to the Big Ten. Does that help? And so those are all positive laws in a sense, but they're really just application of the moral law. And so when we're general making a general equity, we're trying to figure out how does this apply to the Big Ten and how do we reapply it today? Yeah. Is that helpful? Yeah, I, I think so. Mike, what do you think? I mean, I understand it. Doesn't mean I agree with it. <laughs> this is historically how it's been used. I mean, when Alfred the Great... I came up with the laws of England. He treated Deuteronomy as a case law system, right? And that's how we get our common law system. 
was, okay, so if we treat Deuteronomy as common law and Alfred's law as common law, where do we get off today doing things? And so that's actually how it was used. And you see that actually in the scriptures and how, uh, you know, there was no king when they were wandering on the desert. But once Saul became king, uh, the prophet created a new constitution, right? So he took those 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 things in Mosaic code and reconstituted them under the new hierarchy and hierarchical system. And so it seems in passing that even the scriptures use this as a kind of a case law system. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, so I think... Uh... I think it's good and helpful to kind of try to understand it because I think that's really where it comes down to. And you mentioned the positive law, depending on kind of maybe where you're coming from, from a the theological position. So if you're coming more from this philosophical, you're going to have more, maybe finding more positive law, if I'm understanding this correctly. And then if you're coming more from a, uh, you said, Vantillian kind of, um, uh, what do you call it, civil the civil code code is what you yeah. were saying, then you're, you're going to find less, but you're, so what you're basically, if I'm understanding this correctly, or if I'm understanding this correctly, uh, and you can correct me if I'm not, what you're saying is when you're looking at the general equity, you, you do see the moral law being in the 10 commandments, but you're looking at these laws and you're looking at how does this apply to the 10, right? So the, the example you gave for stealing, okay. Or for borrowing something, um, if you're, you're, as you said, you're borrowing something from your neighbor, it's in your care, you're using it, it breaks, you're responsible for that. Otherwise, you're stealing from your neighbor uh, that product. So that's what you're basically with the general equity theonomy is saying, we're looking at these other case laws and we're seeing where they fit within the 10. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, uh, Mike, that's go ahead. So I have a lot of questions and I really Hopefully don't have some answers. <laughs> uh, I mean, you never know. I throw some off the ball questions. Ricky did ask me fanny yard questions. Luckily I didn't have any at the time. <clears throat> no. Um, I think thinking through this and you also, I guess part of the positive with the positive law and understanding is case law, which um is not new you have that in engineers there's no like rule books law books like we have today it's mostly case law um like hubarari's code um so i guess part of some of the discussion comes around how do we move like i can agree with you can look at you know bearing bearing building the paraquate and equating that to how our homes should be safe for people to be in, that they should be positioned or that we should consider those ideas within it. Obviously with part of theonomy, and I think you, you alluded to this, where do the judgments or the punishments, how does that play in the world? Because if it's case law to a particular group, where does how that the Israelites um, with their punishments reflect then within the moral law of the Ten Commandments and then also then apply, you know, in, I guess, in our sense, 
as Christians or to the world. So you're talking about the penology, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so when it comes to the penology, uh, the, the, from Reconstructionism into general equity theonomy, a lot of the times those, those penal codes are carried over, but maybe updated. Um, and that is because they see it as a way to love your neighbor and actually practice justice. Right. And so if, if you kill someone, right, is it more just to put them behind bars for 60 years while taxpayers pay to keep that person alive, pay for their health care, pay for the gender transition, pay for everything? So basically, you're double harming the person, the family that was harmed with the death, because then they got to pay into that person's survival. Or is it more just for a penalty to be executed that is eye for an eye, right? And so the penology is actually a case of love. How do you best love the victim? And so the death penalty is actually one way to best love the victim, right? And even in cases of stealing, in some cases of stealing, you have to give back double or triple or 20% on top, depending on the situation, right? And that is how the law has determined that this is the best way to love everyone in the scenario. This is what true justice looks like. And if you get rid of the penology, if you get rid of the penalties, then you're probably not actually executing justice, right? We talked about with my book that we talked about last time, is canceling someone true justice? No, right? That, that's, that's, that's unjust. That's not the best way to handle things. And so when you think about what is justice is how you apply and how you penalize someone for the breaking of whatever code you have. And so they do see a carry through. Now, general equitists would say that you'd want to maybe update it so you won't stone people. <laughs> and you're not mm -hmm. walking around with big, heavy boulders, but you would you would execute them in a humane way. It's a death penalty. So you would it's equate a death that penalty, to modern. Right. Right. And, and, and when you look at the scriptures, an eye for an eye is actually a limitation. Everyone, you know, including people like Gandhi would say, well, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, as if this thing is meant to escalate. The truth is God gave the eye for an eye as a limit, right? The punishment cannot exceed an eye for an eye. So you can't take both eyes if someone takes one of your eyes, right? So when you understand that this is what true justice is, it's actually a limitation on vengeance. It's a limitation on hating your neighbor. It's, it's when you reach a point to say, okay, we have reached the point where justice has been served. You cannot go any further. Vengeance belongs to God, right? That's, that's what's going on there. And, and even that, that passage, vengeance belonging to God, is used again in Romans 12 when talking about what it means to, to love one another, right? And so that's even brought across and alluded to scripturally even in the New, in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Mike, you said you had a bunch of questions, so I'm going to go ahead. I mean, and if, you, if you have those questions, I want to go ahead and let you I mean, ask them. Kind of. I mean, I've been waiting. I don't have like a list of some. I guess thinking through that, because obviously just to think through it, I mean, obviously the Noahic Covenant gives um, punishments, which I think is more, is binding. Um, and that's in the sense with that, um, but kind of even thinking through like the death penalty, you know, issue, not that I'm against it, 
and it has its purposes. Um, and maybe this is getting in the minutiae. And if this is, maybe we, you know, we can move on. But even thinking about, you know, even in the death penalty, eyewitnesses were required before someone gets put to death. And so, like, even if we think about the death penalty, someone may, we may, as it may harm us, someone may have to be on, you know, in a prison. That's how our justice system works now. You know, I guess, how does that work within it? Because obviously there's a limit there on the death penalty and that you have to have two to three witnesses. This is also an important part when it comes later on, even into Jesus's death. Um, I guess just trying to think, I don't know if these are necessarily hangups, but just initial thoughts that I'm thinking through kind of as you talk and kind of think yeah. through. So some there's of these a things. couple of interesting things about the witnesses, right? And so the question is, how is this most loving? You cannot find someone guilty of anything without two or three witnesses or lines of reasoning, right? If you have a good video recording that's not been tampered with, that can be considered a quote-unquote witness in today's world. And so without being able to without being able to say, yes, this person is guilty, you shouldn't you shouldn't punish them. And that is where America got its innocent until proven guilty mantra from. Um, and that actually is carried through into the New Testament. In Matthew Matthew 18, you're supposed to take the person to two other people in the beginning steps of church discipline, right? And then you take them to the elders and then you take them to the church. And so even at the earliest stages, you're looking for witnesses. You're looking for people who know what's going on and can speak into the situation. That's Jesus today. And then that two witnesses scenario, again, which is a limit on punishment, which is a limit on considering people guilty, is used in First Timothy to talk about finding an elder or pastor guilty of anything before you discipline the pastor of the church, right? And so Paul uses the general equity of that legal code in the New Testament church in order to how to handle pastors, right? So there's a modern application of that. Um, and what's interesting is the, the Old Testament law does say that if someone makes a false accusation and try to be the false witness in court against you, then they will receive the punishment that they were going to exact on you, right? And going back to social justice today, what would that have done to the Me Too movement? Mm -hmm. That's <laughs> right. actually well, what I was thinking of when you yep. when you were saying that, is um, if someone knew that the penalty would be if they were lying, and someone comes along and says, hey, this person raped me. And that person then just say is put to death because of that rape. And then it comes to find out this person lied about this thing. Um, that would probably eliminate a lot of false witness. Yep. Not, not completely because the heart is deceitful and wicked and you're still going to have wicked people that are going to lie and still do things um, as such. But um, when you think about that, it probably would limit that. There would be less people making false accusations because of the penalty, knowing that they're going to receive the punishment that they're accusing someone else of for the crime. And that's the application of case law. Of do not steal. Do not bear a false witness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do not murder because you don't want the person 
to pay for a crime they didn't commit. One of the things I think, um, and, and Mike, in your in your line of thinking through this, mm-hmm. because I think these things too is when I when I I think of how again we mentioned dispensationalism and how kind of as I was growing up, the things I've heard, um, the things I was taught about law, I think especially for many Christians in America, um, when we think about these things, we we and I don't know, maybe maybe it is just being an emotional, maybe it is being, um, uh, I don't know the right word to say, but but it's kind of trying to think through these things and allowing those influences to kind of lead our thinking in a such, in such a way that when we, we think, well, wait a minute. So we're going to take unbelievers and hold them to a standard of law that they don't believe in. Right. And I think that that sometimes can be possibly the thing that holds people up from saying, yeah, let's be general equity theonomist or, you know, the the reconstructionist or thinking this through that, yeah, God's law should apply. But one of the things you said, I think, in the beginning, and I, I do believe this to be true, that there's going to be a law that's going to lead people regardless. Yep. People are going to be held to a set of rules, set of laws, regardless of whether they believe in God or not. The The reality is then whose law are we looking at as being just and best? And so and for Christians, we should be able to say Christ, right? That's part of. But, yeah. But I, I do think, though, that, you know, as, as like Mike was trying to think through some of those things as, as he's listening to the to the program and then thinking about the the backgrounds that many of us come out of. And again, we're, we're looking at it's grace, grace, grace. How you don't want to stone a homosexual. And obviously we're not talking about stoning people today. You want to give them the gospel. You want them to come to Christ. You know what I mean? Um, but there still is law that needs to be presented in a society. Cause what do you do when you have these pedophiles? What do you do when you have these murderers? What do you do when you have these rapists? What do you do with abortion? Cause that's big. You know, how do we hold these mothers accountable, these doctors accountable? What do we do here? And I think those are things that we think through or try to think through. But we also, because of maybe our backgrounds, we're a little hesitant to go all the way with that. You know what I mean? And yeah. say, okay, that mother who put their child to death, they, we don't want it, We don't want them to be put to death. We don't want them to be criminalized. Um, but being consistent, we would say criminalize abortion. And then these individuals would need to be criminalized for the, the taking of uh, a life, innocent life and doctors and some, so, um, and such just, again, I'm, I'm probably rambling, but I'm thinking through this stuff as well and saying, these are the, 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 the things that we need to consider, especially in our society today, because you have abortion, you have the LB, LGBTQ, you know, um, uh, children being mutilated. You have um, gay marriage being pushed on a society um, and all these things are things you'd have to think through because that's what they're going to say and say, well, I thought you as Christians are loving. What about grace? You know what I mean? Well, that, a couple a couple thoughts there. First to your last point, one of the things I'm trying to get at is God's law is loving. God's law is beneficial to everyone under it, right? I think quite often we 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 look at God's law as a burden, but First John says 
God's commands are not burdensome, mm-hmm. right? They're actually life-giving. They're actually beneficial. They're gracious and good. And so when we look at God's laws, when I say they're gracious, they're not, they're not going to save you, but they're good for society. They are justice. An eye for an eye is justice. Go this far and no further, right? And so they may seem hard to us because we've been basically out of them for our 150 years as Americans, right? And that brings me to my second point is the reason why I think so many of us struggle, including myself with some of these things, is because we live in the day and age where we live in, where our church has been saying for the radical two kingdoms, nothing at all about these things. For the dispensationalist, they've been separating the law into the Jewish age and grace only for the, the, the church age. That for the last 150 to 200 years, basically since the Civil War, the church has been trying to walk away and step away from God's law as good for society. That actually happened in the Southern Presbyterian Church. They came up with a doctrine called the spirituality of the church because the Southern Presbyterians didn't want to answer the question of slavery. They didn't want to upset their congregation. They just want to say, okay, spirituality of the church, we're dealing just with spiritual issues. And that evolved into what is now called Reformed or Radical Two-Kingdom Theology. Mm-hmm. Right? And so part of the reason why this is so foreign to us is because it's been taken from us over the last couple centuries. And dispensationalism, putting the law strictly in the Jewish age, has an effect, and dispensationalism being the biggest theology in America, has an effect said, okay, that is old, we don't need that, that is of no benefit. But the truth is, those things are used and applied in the, in the New Testament, and they are considered loving and good and gracious, right? How do you love someone who's accused? Well, you find the witnesses to make sure they're actually guilty. Yeah. You know? And that, that's where kind of as I've, I've listened to some of these discussions, I'm not an expert in it. That's why I said, let's let's have a show where we can have someone come in and explain what <laughs> can explain uh, what general equity theonomy is. But like, I think that as I've listened to some of these discussions, the one thing that keeps coming back to me is, again, when it comes to they'll say, well, well, how are we going to hold these unbelievers to God's standard? to God's law. But as I mentioned, and as you said in the beginning here, that they're going to bow the knee to something. And what's going to be more beneficial? And this is where, you know, I'm, I'm trying to work through this myself, but what's going to be more beneficial to everyone, whether believer or unbeliever, what's going to be more just God's law or man's law implementing something? Because we look at right now, we look at our society, God creates man and woman. He makes a male and female. We have the government saying, we can take this male and make them a female. We can twist that. We can pervert what God has created. Um, God creates life in the womb. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Man comes along and is saying, we can end the life of this child for whatever reason for this woman's convenience or schooling or whatever it may be, whatever the excuse is, we can end this life and it's justifiable. Um, Marriage is between one man and one woman. The government says, no, two men can marry or two women can marry. 
and it's probably going to go further and you're going to have uh um uh you know polygamous kind of marriages or what do they call those uh what do they call the ones with polyamorous yeah polyandries so many terms i don't know <laughs> can't keep up with everything but um but those are things that you're looking at. Bestiality nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, you was going to say something? Just polyandry. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. so, so when we look at that, again, there's going to be, um, there's going to be laws implemented. And the one thing I keep coming back to in my own thoughts on this is even the laws that God gave to Israel, while we, we all, I think, agree, ceremonial laws, they're fulfilled within Christ. But then you have this judicial law and the, and the moral law, and, and as you're saying, taking these judicial laws and looking to where they fit and apply within the moral law uh, as a civil code or as, as a case law, um, that that is going to be more beneficial to everyone because it's first and foremost it's god's law and what is more i mean the the whole of the law to love the lord god with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself this is uh the fulfilling of the law love is a fulfillment of the law and so as you you keep mentioning this love this is the love of yeah. god in this law so well, let me jump off that for a yeah, second go right ahead. um you just quoted matthew matthew 5 i believe uh no no that was um where is that at? anyways you quoted that the law is based on the two great commandments, love God and love neighbor. Mm -hmm. But what is that saying? That the, the fertile soil that God's law comes out of is the soil of love, right? If you love God and love neighbor, what you're going to get, the tree that's going to produce is a fruitful tree of what we see in the rest of the law, right? That's, that's one of the logical implications of what Christ is saying. Is that if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Matthew 22, this is a great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All these other things are sitting on love. Right? So these are the, the law and the prophets is love. And out of that soil will come the law and the prophets. So if you are actually loving God and loving neighbor, you will get this, right? And and to go back to, to love, Romans 13, now I'm not going to go one through seven because that's a different can of worms. Starting in verse eight, it says this, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. Mm -hmm. Now, when we read that, we think we don't have to fulfill a law with people. We just have to love them. But that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying, and I stress this word in verse 9, any other commandment. So he quotes parts of the Ten Commandments and says, any other, any other of the 613 commandments are summed up. The Greek word there is, and I'm going to butcher this, so I apologize, anakapsalupsitai. Uh, and when you dig into that word, and I do this quickly in the book, when I dig into this word, it means to recapitulate or condense. That is to sum up, to take this big body of work, to distill it down and boil it down, and to say love. So what Paul is saying 
in Romans 13, 8 through 10 is, when I say love your neighbor, I'm saying treat them justly according to God's law. Mm-hmm. Any other commandment, right? And so Romans 13 actually testifies as to what is right, good, and true, and beautiful, and loving. And that is defined in any other commandment, uh, including the few that he lists there. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's where uh, I think this conversation tends to hinge um, on we as Christians can say, yeah, we want to love our neighbor, but the unbeliever doesn't care for their neighbor. Um, to some degree, because we're created in the image of God, it's already written upon our hearts, but there's there's not the same degree because they don't care for God. They don't care for his law. They're in rebellion. But at the same time, it's still um, it's best for a society. It's best for a nation uh, is what I'm what I'm taking away from from um, the general equity theonomy. But to get there. You're you're saying, um, as I heard you say this in the beginning, and and I think this is the 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 claim that many general theonomists, general equity theonomists are making. It's coming from the bottom up, not a top down thing where you're trying to yeah. institute it and make it. It's the proclaiming the gospel. It's um, bringing the 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 commands of God to the people, to the nations, discipling the nations, right? Um, and and then when change happens within an individual that brings about change within a society you know we hear often they'll say oh there was this big crusade and twenty thousand people in this city got saved and i always think to myself well man that's going to be a big radical change for that city if twenty thousand people got saved right it's usually never the reality because that's more of a emotional raise your hand say this prayer kind of thing and people who already saying they're a Christian getting saved again. Yeah. But in reality, if if this is what we believe God does in the hearts of individuals, it will bring about change to where then they are a city on a hill. They are a light shining in, into their communities. And there's something and different. Than, this, go ahead. We saw this starting in 2020 to 2022, right? All this COVID stuff. Right. If you love your neighbor, you'll wear a mask. If you love your neighbor, you will take the shot. If you love your neighbor, you are social distance. If you love your neighbor, you will not sing too loud at church. <laughs> right. All these ridiculous laws. And that's because Christians are so undiscipled in what God says justice and truth and beauty is that you can squeeze anything you want into love your neighbor. That's one of the arguments in the social justice book is they can squeeze anything they want into love. They can squeeze critical theory into love because Christians have not defined love well in the last 150 years. Right. So much so now that we are, we will be considered those who are hating because of our law. Now, I, I, I agree with what you were saying a few minutes ago, Ricky, um, about unbelievers not really having a true concern for neighbors, right? We're all selfish. Even Christians are selfish. But I think a lot of people are, in a colloquial sense, good people. And a lot of people want to be virtuous. And that's why everyone was wearing masks and getting shots and staying home and stuff like that. Everyone wants to be virtuous and appear virtuous to the society, right? And so the bottom-up 
what's interesting, the bottom-up approach to general equity theonomy is you don't need to win 100%. You don't need to win 50% or 51%. If you, if the church can be effective at truly evangelizing and discipling, this is a question of discipleship, and discipling 20%, 15% of people, you will start seeing those changes that you were just talking about after the big rallies, right? Mm-hmm. And those big tent meetings. And so Christians, we don't need to take over. What we need to do is faithfully witness and faithfully disciple in all that God has, right? Second Timothy 3 says, all scripture, including everything that Moses wrote, is breathed out by God and is profitable, good, beneficial for training in righteousness, for correction, for reproof, right? So these things are to inform the Christian body today. I think I think a lot of us, especially with the dispensational background, have ignored the first five books of the Bible because, because of that. We don't follow what Timothy actually says about these things being beneficial and good. Yeah. You know, and you mentioned uh, the pandemic. I think this conversation has definitely heated up due to that Yes, because you've had so much overreach from the government on its people closing down churches and trying to, you know, allowing you to go to bars and certain things like this, but not go to church or go to these big box stores, but not go to church. Um, and, and people were seeing these things take place. Um, and it's caused this conversation. And I think that's, Ultimately, I think there's there's still questions. We're, we're running out of time here, but I think there's still questions that come to mind. Is again, okay? I think we've we've answered some of those, or you've answered some of those. Is from the bottom up. It's not a top down thing, but to get there um, is going to take churches to properly disciple their their people. Um, not like we do evangelism on the streets. We want to get people to come to know the Lord, so we share the gospel. But we also provide them a gospel track with information where they can contact us so that we can connect them with a local church in their area, some, a good church, so that they can be discipled. Because I do believe God works through his church. Um, and so yeah. we want to be able to do those things. But it's also proper discipleship. Uh, you know, when you're trying to teach all of what God has given to us in his word and doing it uh, rightly, rightly dividing it, not in a dispensational sense, but rightly dividing the word. Um, I think that's very important for us. Mike, you have any thoughts, questions? I know there's a lot more we can probably dig into, but so I do. I have probably my toughest questions yet coming down the pike. It was great seeing you guys. You have a good night. (laughs) No, you will not get a wet around them. The first is what is the best argument digestible or not argument, the best like article or YouTube video that best describes general equity theonomy. And secondly, is what is the best article that you've read that disagrees with general equity theonomy oh, for I... those who want to kind of continue to do it? I I'm a hard hitter. I don't know. <laughs> right. This is this is something I've been kind That's of swimming in for the last seven or eight years. Um I would say 
as a summary, uh, Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, Doug Wilson, put out a video called General Equity Theonomy. It's about 17 minutes long, and it just kind of describes what it is and kind of where it comes from. Um, as far as a defense and argument against it, I don't know. I, I do more listening. Uh-huh. And so it goes in one ear out the other. And I don't remember all the sources. I mean, I can pitch my book again, that uh, social justice book, uh, Bringing Responses to the Social Justice Gospel, because one of the chapters in there is kind of an opening defense of biblical justice um, and how it responds oh. to social justice. Sorry, I, no. I was thinking of an article that speaks against general th- equity theology yeah. so like the opposite side you know klein wrote against bonson and he's usually the big go-to meredith klein he's kind of the go-to um there are some people out there like r scott clark who argues a lot against the general equity theonomy but i don't find his arguments at all persuasive so that's maybe not a good place to go um Trying to think. I know I, Tom Hicks has written a couple of pieces. Yeah, and Pastor CBTS, uh, Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, they put yeah, out a Sam couple Walter of. Now. Yeah, they put out a couple of arguments, um, papers. I think about a year ago, addressing theonomy, and I found those to be a good read through, challenging. So I, the thing is, I I skim and read and listen to so much. That say that yeah, this is the fine. best thing. I'm sorry, I can't. I'm just. I'm gonna. That's why. I'm gonna skip on that. That's why. No, because I think you know. Obviously, we're having discussions. I have disagreements. Um, you know, with theonomy and, but that doesn't neglect reading only in the silos that I agree with. Right. And so, obviously, for those who are now just entering this discussion, you know. I mean, I've listened to Apologia. I have a kind of a grasp of of theonomy. Yeah, this is a little bit different. I don't know if they would consider themselves general equity. I think yeah, they never do. Apologia do they? consider themselves GET. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, like, I mean, I, I realize I have somewhat of a background um, in some of these things, but not necessarily, you know, obviously some people may be like, you're not on Twitter. This is like, what is this? So... Um, yeah, I think I think one of the reasons I'm having a hard time answering this is because a response to it depends on your theological background. Meredith Klein mm-hmm. is it is coming at it from uh, from a two kingdom perspective, right? A dispensationalist would come at it from a different perspective. Um, yeah, a, a more of a Thomist would approach it with a natural law perspective, and so there are so many angles that are dependent on your presuppositions that it, that that are disagreeing with this position yeah that it really depends on your starting place so here's a, I think, here's another hard hitter what okay go ahead ricky well i was going to say i think the important thing is it is something we do need to think through and consider um whether you become a theonomist or not because we're seeing a lot of people, especially because of the pandemic, a lot of people stand up against the government, stand up going to um, 
city council meetings and, and these places and call people to repent for abortion. And they're calling the, on these governmental officials to, um, they're calling on them to adhere to God's law, ultimately, right? Yeah. That they're going to be responsible to it. So it's, it's something I think we need to consider because what do you do when that government official says, okay, I repent. How do I live this out now as a government official? And so we need to be able to have answers to provide answers. Again, whether whether you fall on a theonomy side or not, we're still going to need to provide answers. So we're going to need to think these things through. You know, those are just things that, that kind of come to my head because that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing more people go and take stands. As we've seen MacArthur take a stand through the pandemic for them wanting to keep his church shut. And he said, no, wrote a letter to the governor, you know, um, and, and called him to God's standard, right? He's going to be responsible. And then we see, you mentioned Apologia guys, many of these guys going and standing before these councils for abortion. Well, what do you do then when this governor or these city councilmen say, okay, I repent, I turn to Christ, now how do I live this out as a right, government official? That's why I stressed before, this is actually a discipleship question. Mm -hmm. We as a church have not discipled people into what justice and truth and love and beauty and goodness is, right? And so this is actually a discipleship question. Once someone is saved, what do you do with it then? <laughs> what do you teach them? Right? To teach them all of the, the, that, that he has commanded, well, what has he commanded? Right? Mm -hmm. And so th th those are the questions involved here. Um, and one thing that I'm very careful of, and if I come across as offensive to anyone, I apologize. There is a spectrum of people who want to do, Christians who want to do right. You have, on the far end, you have the kind of the religious right who are not thinking necessarily critically. They just know that transing kids is bad and abortion is bad. Uh -huh. You know, and this is, give me my MAGA hat and this is where I'm at. Right? There are those people who are less academic about their approach in this. And I would agree with a lot of their application. But how you get there, I probably wouldn't agree with. And then you have a lot of the academics that are more two kingdom, maybe Thomist or <clears throat> maybe R2K or whatever. And then you have the theonomists who maybe agree with elements of both of those, but they're trying to come at it from a more academic, a more rigorous approach that we're not just, you know, woohoo, go GOP. That's that's, mm -hmm. that's not the attitude here. You know, I, I have been reading historical documents. I have been looking at the confessions. I have been looking at the scriptures, looking at the Greek, trying to figure out what do the scriptures actually teach on these issues, right? And so there's a spectrum here that we have to recognize <clears throat> and and respond with. Yeah. Mike, you said you had another question. It was more joking, but do you have to be a post-mill to be a theonomist? I mean... And I feel like, well, I am kind of joking because of things that I know. Um, it does seem to be a post-millennial position. So okay. I think there, I think there is probably the connection because you mentioned it with um, kind of presuppositional apologetics. I guess it's probably more pre connected to presuppositionalism than post-mill, but yeah, um, it would be. Well, so. The reconstructionists, the, 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 the really heavy academic thinkers back in the 70s and 80s, 
they they saw these things interconnected. And I see that argument, and I kind of agree with parts of it, that you presuppose everything that Christ is Lord. He is Lord over history. He is Lord over the church. He is Lord over apologetics and salvation. And so the way that plays out is you have a presuppositional apologetic, right? And the presuppositionalism is God is right. God is true. And that's your starting place. So when you come to the law and you come to how you understand it, you're going to minimize human reason, natural law, and things like that. Be based more on scriptures. And so you're going to want to be more theonomic because of those presuppositions that Christ is Lord. And post-millennialism is how that plays out, right? And so if Christ is Lord over history, he's going to play this out in history. Th that was the logic of, of those recons, you know, 40 years ago. Now, general equity theonomists today have maybe backed away from some of that. They tend to be post-mill. Um, we, we know Apologia, uh, Moscow, Idaho, cross-politic guys, they're all post-mill. I'm flirting with post-millennialism. Um, and so that is because if you see that true discipleship and true um, discipling the nations includes this definition of justice, and the job, and Christ won't return to the kind of the job is done, then you're going to have something more akin to a post-millennial eschatology because your, your your method of discipleship is not just they believe in the four spiritual laws, they're discipled, go on to the next town. It's, no, we're going to stay here. We're going to work. We're going to actually disciple and create converts and change the culture for biblical standards. Right? And so these things, they do have relatedness and there is overlap. I think philosophically there's a reason for that. But I don't think it's logically necessary. I, I'm only flirting with postmillennialism. I, I would say that I may be there, but I'm not going to, you know, dogmatically say I'm there yet. Uh, but I am much more confident in GET theonomy. So I don't think there's a logical necessity between them. Yeah. All right. So um, we, we're at the end of the program here today. Uh, uh, Dan, I want to go ahead and give you, is there anything else you would want to say that we didn't maybe cover uh, in the program today or anything you would want to leave us with any final thoughts on this? Yeah, and I, I think the big thing would be this is an in-house discussion, right? <clears throat> there have been people who want to say that those theonomists, they're outside the kingdom. You know, if, if you don't have this view, then you're not actually believing in sola fide. I think this is an in-house discussion. That's why I stress this at the beginning. We need to be looking at these issues and the application of these issues with Christian love, right? Everyone at this table believes in sola fide, believes in the gospel. But how then do you love your neighbor? And I think that's a worthy discussion that we should be having. And we're going to disagree, maybe in small part, maybe in large part. But it is an in-house discussion. And so I think that would be my final encouragement. All right. Dan, any uh want to leave the listeners with where they can find you, maybe if they want to hit you up with more questions. Um, you know, also your book that's out there, uh, where they can yeah, find so, that as well. Yep. So we did a discussion on my book a couple years ago. Uh it's called The Brian's Response to the Social Justice Gospel. Um, there's a second edition out now. Um, it's just update a little expansion on that. 
You can find that on Amazon. Um, and I am currently leading a Bible study on Monday nights in Brighton, Michigan. If you are interested in that, my email address is on the screen here. It's a dpknapp at gmail.com. And so if you're interested in a Bible study, we're going through Mark right now. Um, don't hesitate to reach out to me. I can also be found on Facebook where I basically copy and paste every link I read. So <laughs> if you uh, want to catch up where I'm reading, what I'm doing, you can find me on Facebook there. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on the program, Dan. We will definitely, uh, I'm sure, reach out to you again at some point and bring you on and have some more conversations on maybe theonomy, maybe some other things as well. But uh, uh, we want to thank you for coming on the program tonight. Thanks for having me. I had fun. All right, that's G220 Radio. Until next time, God bless. Hopefully I was helpful. <laughs> The live hasn't started yet. Stopped yet. Sorry. Yeah, it's taking a little longer than normal. Yeah. Yeah, they have. Usually it's like 10 seconds. Making controversial statements right now. <laughs> we'll edit it later. Yeah, this is strange. Like they're not going off. Is it still live? It's saying live, at least on Facebook. This is the after twenty after show. Oh yeah, or not Facebook? Where the guest is unsure and unconfident about what he said. <laughs> yeah, it's still going. Oh yeah, or not Facebook. I'm gonna hit this end stream yeah. one more time. It's still